uh, focusing on those first four centuries up through Constantine and actually through the end of that century with Theodosius. And of course, as you know, we've kind of begun at the beginning because our story, the story of our faith as Christians, began a long time before Jesus, which is what we're looking at last week and this week. Our story is grounded, um, let's just put it this way, our Bible does not start with Matthew. Our Bible starts with what? Genesis and the story of Israel. And so we go, we're going back and looking at that, and it's the faith that is narrated, uh, primary resource there would be the, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Uh, this is the faith of Jesus. It is the faith of all the disciples. It is the faith then of those they went out and talked to and converted for the first several generations, pretty much for the entire first century. The Christian faith was a movement within, Ju within Judaism. We know that. So last week what we did, a uh, little, little ambitious in the undertaking, Genesis to Malachi and beyond in 30 minutes. We didn't quite make it. Uh, <laughs> but we looked at the story. We looked at the narrative. Um, we started with creation, walked actually beyond where the Bible ends, up through the Maccabean Revolt and the Hasmoneans, and right up to the time that Jesus and the disciples were a part of. Um, and the thinking there is, is that as Christians, that's our story. It's the Jewish story, but it's also a part of our story. So we claim that, and it's a big piece of who we are. Today we want to look at the same material, but look at it from a very particular perspective. Uh, we want to look at the faith of Israel, because not only did the story of Israel become our story, the faith of Israel had a profound impact upon us and the shape of our faith. Um, if you would go to a Jewish synagogue, uh, there's a lot in there. I mean, the first thing you'd probably notice is that some of it's in Hebrew, and that may be you know, a little bit of a shock. But in terms of what they're saying about God and beliefs, except for the myth not having much to say about Jesus, most of what would be there you would know and you would be very comfortable with. Most of our basic beliefs are in direct continuity with Judaism. And so we have a strong heritage there. How we worship God. You just think of all the things that we do in worship and you walk down to synagogue and they're doing all the same things. The only one that might be different is they don't do communion. Well, actually they do. They have the loaf and they have the cup. And so there's a very similar kind of thing there too. Um, so just as the name, we talked about this last week, the name of the, for the people of God morphed and changed across the, the generations. Uh, do you remember they were Hebrews first? Anybody remember what the word Hebrew means? Wanderer, yeah, Ivry. Um, as the creed says in the Old Testament, my father was a wandering Armenian. Okay. They were a nomadic people. Today we would call them Bedou or Bedouin. Uh, they did not have land. They did not have a location. They moved around, as many peoples did in the ancient world. And then they settled in the land. And they became uh, uh, people of the land. And during that period, we call them Israelites. So the, they're the people of the land of Israel. And then they're taken off into exile, and then they come back, and shortly after that, we begin to see, particularly in the, the Greek period, a, a new term being used. We've not seen it before. Uh, they are now called Jews, and the faith is called Judaism. And that's not just because Judah is the only tribe left, which is true, but more it's, it's a, a sense of an identity that is profoundly religious, not ethnic, not geographic. In the same way, if we look at the faith of Israel, 
The faith that we see during the nomadic period is not the faith of the settlement, is not the faith after the exile. Their faith also goes through a series of transformations. So that by the time we arrive at the Jesus and the disciples and then the birth of the New Testament and the Christian faith, we're no longer talking about the faith as it was with Moses or even with David and Solomon or even with Hezekiah or Josiah, not even Ezra and Nehemiah. The faith over the centuries morphed and changed as it would make sense that it would. And it became something very different. I don't know if Moses would have walked in the first century if he had even recognized this is the same faith because it changed that much. It changed into the faith that we are born out of. The faith that gives rise to two other faiths, contemporary Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, and Christianity. Uh, it fundamentally shaped our identity. Uh, it shapes our beliefs. It shapes the way we understand God. It shapes the way we worship. It even shapes structure. By the way, did you ever wonder where bishops came from? Just you have idle moment on your hand. Where did bishops <laughs> come from? You know, always one of the, all of a sudden the creeds and the councils, the bishop that comes out of the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, the arch synagogos, the head of the synagogue, and they also had in the synagogue a, a sort of a, a a a committee, and out of that we get the idea of the presbytery or the elders and the deacons, all that goes back to Judaism, even our structure. The language changes because we're moving from Hebrew into Greek, but it's all there. Now, if we go back as far as we can into the past, into the period of the early Hebrews, uh, we find something at the beginning that, that's very different from the Judaism of the time of Jesus. And so we want to look at this a little bit. The Hebrews did not begin as a nation or as a state. They did not have a king. Remember, they are Hebrews. They're Ivory. Uh, they began as a group of tribes, some of whom come out of Egypt and others whom already existed in the land of Canaan. That surprises some people. We, we had a long series in the Old Testament last year. We talked about that. But uh, not only did archaeologists say this, but if you read the Bible and you got the 12 tribes and all of a sudden they start mentioning all the tribes, all of a sudden you wind up with somewhere between 24 or 30. And where did those others come from? Well, they were already there. And they're all, all very much alike. Uh, during this period, what's interesting, uh, this is a freed archaeology. I, I get fascinated with this. Archaeologists say they cannot tell the difference at this stage between the Hebrews and the other people of Canaan. Materially, they are the same. Culturally, they are the same. The Hebrews are Canaanites. The Canaanites are not some other kind of foreign weird group. The Hebrews are Canaanites. Their pottery is the same. Their houses are the same. Everything about them is pretty much the same, which, you know, raises some interesting questions. When they entered the land, the Hebrews, according to the Bible, are first a federation of tribes, loosely federated. Sometimes they work together. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they fight each other. Only centuries later, under David and Solomon, are they actually going to form a nation and have a king, and we have, we have what we call a national state. During the early period, uh, what stood about, about the Hebrews was not their culture. Archaeologists are digging in the dirt and they're digging into stuff. Well, is that Hebrew or not? Well, if it's a pre-writing period, we can't tell by the writing. There's not much difference, you know. Well, what is different is their faith. That, from the very, very beginning, as far as we go back, is different. They worship a distinctive God. Uh, there's a word there, Yahweh. Uh, sometimes it's in the old King James, it was just L-O-R-D, Lord, in all caps. 
Uh, if you're German and you can't pronounce Y's and make it a J and you get the separation wrong, you wind up with Jehovah, okay? So that's where that comes from. But it's the word Yahweh, and it's in Hebrew, it's the to be verb. God is. God is existence itself. That name, if you look at the different traditions in the Hebrew Bible, is a name that is only associated with the Sinai narratives. So the name of God, Yahweh, seems to be very closely tied to the Sinai event and the Sinai narrative. Uh, this was a shock to me. During this early period, they are not monotheists. Do y'all know that? Okay, some of us know that if we, we've taken some classes. Uh, but, yeah, I just kind of always assume that, you know, here is for the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's just, you know, Judaism 101. We've always believed there's one God. Uh-uh. And the Bible's very clear about that. They are what the technical term is henotheistic. I had to look that up just so you know, okay. Uh, <laughs> henotheism is the worship of a single God while acknowledging the existence of other gods, okay. We have our God, but our God is not the only God. There are other gods that are out there. Very clearly in the Exodus story and throughout the early period, for example, this is Exodus, but the identical in Deuteronomy. These are the two versions. God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh. This is the Sinai narrative, so God has a name. I am Yahweh, your God. May not be their God, I'm your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This I have done for you. You shall have no other gods before me, which implies there are other gods. You shall not make yourself an idol, neither in the form of anything above heaven, on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You only put that there if what? They're doing it, right? They're making those things, okay? You shall not bow down to them or worship them. By the way, at the exact time, do you remember the story? The exact time Moses is up on the mountain getting this stuff, what's his brother Aaron doing down at the bottom of the hill? Golden calf, okay. <laughs> Family, you got to love them. Uh, <laughs> for the Hebrews, all the people in the area, Worship was based on sacrifice. By this, I mean animal sacrifice. If you're Hebrews, wanderers, do you have crops? You don't. What do you have? Yeah. You got the sheep, you know, and that, that's what you have. That's what you use in worship, you know. So during this early period, archaeology says there does not seem to be anything distinctive about the way the people worship. What's distinctive is their object of worship, the God they worship, which is the God of Sinai, but there's there's one caveat. There's one feature that stands up about the way they worship that that is different and it's different from them later. And it's something they'll come back to. Remember the tabernacle? What's interesting about the tabernacle is it's portable. And it's not limited to a particular place, which means God is not limited. Typically, now God may be associated with a place Sinai or Horeb. But you remember the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Symbolism for what? And what's God doing? Traveling, Traveling with him. Yeah. Uh, God is not restricted to a place. Now, the Jews are going to lose that belief. But, okay, there's also indications that the Hebrews had a legal code of this period. It, all of the ancient stuff that goes back to the Sinai narrative, at the heart of that story is a code. Uh, it is probably oral, not written in the beginning. Because Paleo-Hebrew does not have words for write, read, or author, okay? Those words don't exist in Paleo-Hebrew. 
probably a strong indication that it starts out as an oral culture, as many ancient cultures were. But the legal code is both religious and moral. You remember we got two, two tablets? One tablet for, and one tablet for, yeah. The, and Jesus summarizes that, love the Lord your God. That summarizes the first four, love your neighbor. That sum summarizes the last six. The temple in Jerusalem is, is a late innovation. They are in the land over two centuries during the period of Judges, during the period of Saul, before they ever get around to building a temple. Uh, and they do this during the United Kingdom of David. David gets the, the basics of it, but Solomon is allowed to build it. I did not know this until recently. Did you know that prior to the temple, that location was already a place of worship? It was a Canaanite holy site, going back at least 6,000 years. There's a thing called continuity of worship places. You know, you tear down the temple. Where did they build the second temple? And if the, there's some people who want to build a third temple, where they want to build it, which is a bit problematic because it's currently occupied by somebody else. Okay, uh, this re represents a significant change because we've now moved from a tabernacle understanding that God is not tied to a particular place to a particular site where God becomes increasingly important and we have this language of house and there's this wonderful debate in the Old Testament depending which narrative you're in uh, one narrative basically uh, through the prophet God says to Israel you would build me a house bunk I build you a house Israel and the idea is that God does not need a house but then the other tradition says we build a house and who do we wh where do we think that God is God dwells in the house that's right, sanctuary. At first, the Temple of Jerusalem was only one of many such places. You knew that, right? You ever read a place called Bethel? Beth in Hebrew means house. El means house of God. Shiloh, Peniel, Shechem, or Shechem, Dan. By the way, this is a picture. Two years ago, we went to Israel. This is the site at Tel Dan. A little reconstruction there. This is these sites were, were ongoing for many, many, many centuries. The Jews, first of all, did not have a worship site. That's a later thing. They had multiple worship sites. And so in the Old Testament, as you're reading stories, these places come in. Some are associated with Jacob or, or various uh, figures. Most are not located in northern Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. Can you imagine why? Remember we talked about it a little bit last week. Where do most of the people live? The north. What is most of the south? Desert. Good place for goats, okay? Prior to the exile, Israel's faith seems to have been tribal, different shrines, different locations. So as you read the narrative, certain tribes and certain characters tend to be associated with certain locations. Uh, they're not all equally important to everybody. The fair faith and worship continued to resemble that of their, their, their neighbors. This is a fascinating photo. This is a fairly recent find. This is Andara. It's a Hittite temple, contemporary uh, with the Israelite period. It's uh, in Syria, not a place you want to visit at the moment, um, near Aleppo. Now, what's interesting about that is it's got a lot of statues that don't look Jewish, but if you look down on it from above, the floor pan is exact to the temple in Jerusalem. The dimensions and every piece of it which is to say that when they built the temple in Jerusalem, this one predates it, it's a template. 
They're worshiping the way other people worship. Worship is still based on sacrifice, although there's a little innovation. We've now been in the land for two or three centuries. And if you're in the land, what can you grow? Crops. And so now we not only bring sheep and cattle and pigeons and stuff like that to the altar, what else do we bring? Okay. So we have uh, several new feasts, tabernacles, and others that come in. They're harvest festivals. Uh, Passover did not start out as a ha harvest festival, but Passover becomes a harvest festival as a part of that. The written law still does not appear to play any role at all. This is up through David and Solomon and even really up to the destruction of Israel. Uh, throughout the United Kingdom, Israel's faith was still very similar to its neighbors. The only difference seems to be still the God they worshipped. Uh, they continued to be henotheistic because we have got archaeological evidence. Guess what they found hundreds of thousands of in every single Jewish site? The Jews loved their idols, okay? Uh, which is why their prophets are constantly railing against idolatry, you know, because every home. By the way, they found the highest concentration in the homes of the wealthy at the base of where the temple compound is, among the priests. Interesting, okay? Prophets give ample testimony, to, uh, constantly railing against the gods. Archaeology supports it. These are called Asherahs or Asherim for plural. These are the feminine goddesses. The uh, Baal is the, the masculine god. And they're just, you can see they're, li they're little small. And they're, they're very, very popular. With the advent of the formal state and kings and the establishment of a nation, we get something we have not seen before. For the first time, we have writing. You're looking at one of the, the oldest pieces of writing ever discovered in the Holy Land. Uh, it seems to have begun first with courts and kings. We know, for example, in Babylon and in Egypt and other places where writing seems to be prevalent and first appear is in, a, is in the court of a king. Governments like bureaucracy. <laughs> Governments like records. Governments want to account for everything. So writing seems to have first appeared around that. So once Israel gets a king and a government and nationhood, all of a sudden, we began to see writing occur in these sites. Uh, we have scribes who can do the writing. So during this period, we get the early examples. This uh, archaeological review said uh, that may be the oldest example of Hebrew writing there is, and it talks about taking care of the widow and the poor and the offering. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we get literary references. We get archaeological finds. This is the... Uh, Kayafa Astrakhan, discovered in 2008. Now you can tell from the background, are you in Judah or Samaria or Israel? Trees. There are no trees in Judah, okay? Uh, this is up north. This is not far from where Jesus was born. Uh, what's interesting about this is that this Astrakhan, I don't know if you know much about writing and what's early, 11th century B.C., that is from the time of David and Solomon. And until 2008, there was an argument in within the archaeological community that David and Solomon never existed. You knew that, right? Because there was not one shred of any archaeological evidence. Well, in the last five years, this and the finds in Jerusalem and some others have come up, and you can no longer make that argument, okay? There is, this is Paleo-Hebrew. We've got Hebrew writing in a site. 
we have in Proverbs, it tells us that at the time of Solomon, the officials, uh, uh, actually the time of King Hezekiah, the Proverbs of Solomon, which may have been oral or may have been written, could have been written, because we have examples of writing, that the officials of King Hezekiah had copied. And then they, they get, it, get put in the book of uh, that. Uh, this is the Shemba inscription, which is from the 7th century BCE. This is Paleo-Hebrew. Doesn't look like modern Hebrew, does it? Because modern Hebrew is the Aramaic. That's the Aramaic letters that we look at. Writing is probably strongest in the northern kingdom. They're larger, they're wealthier, they've got a big court. At this point in history, Jerusalem down south is almost nothing, okay? Maybe, I'm going to be optimistic, maybe 2,000 people, according to the archaeology. Very small. Up north, the mighty kingdom where the crops are. When it's destroyed in 722, many tribes or scribes from Israel came south to Judah. This is during the reign of Hezekiah, which, which accounts for the fact that there's this explosion of building and archaeology and all kinds of things during Hezekiah's reign. The next key event seems to be with Josiah in the 7th century BCE. And do you remember the story of in Deuteronomy, the finding of the lost book of the scroll, Deuteronomy history? It's recorded in 2 Kings 22. By the way, anytime they say book, you know that's an anachronism. Because book, the codex, 2nd century AD is the first of those that we can actually find. So prior to that, it was a scroll. So just, you know, even though it says book, you know it's a scroll. Uh, probably, most likely, and there's pretty wide consensus on this, is an early form of the book of Deuteronomy. Because I mean, it's that second law that came out. Uh, they bring it south from the northern kingdom as they're fleeing as refugees. Uh, they recover this scroll, and it results in something we've never seen before in the history of Israel's faith. We're now going to have a religious reform based on writing, a religious document. By the way, this is just <coughs> 10 years before the nation of Judah is wiped off the face of the earth. We have a reform based on writing. Um, it's one of those interesting things of history. If, 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 if you could have picked a time for Judah to lose everything, this was the right moment because it guarantees their survival. This reform includes the centralizing of worship in Jerusalem. The temple is the only place we can worship. God only dwells in Jerusalem. So we destroy Dan. We destroy Shechem. We destroy all the others. Um, we have a campaign against other places of worship, and we have a campaign against idols. And from the perspective of Jerusalem, Dan and Shiloh and the others are the same thing as idols because God can only be one possible place in the universe. Where would that be? Jerusalem. For the first time, we have writing moving to the center. We have faith based on that just before the exile. Uh, the exile, as we know, results in the loss of a lot. They lose the land. They lose the king. They lose the state. They lose the temple. They lose their freedom. They lose everything but one thing. What's the one thing they keep? The writing. Because that's portable. They can lose everything, yet their culture and their identity and their history are now written. And that can travel with them. I mean, if they had been wiped out 100 years earlier, there would have been no Judaism. We're going to see the same thing when Jesus emerges on the world stage. Of all the times in history for Jesus to appear, everything within the, the nation of Israel and everything in the Mediterranean world was just right for Christianity to take off and explode. Okay? They've got writing. They can take it with them into exile. The exile is uh, it's horrendous, 
but this is often true in life, it is also one of the most incredibly creative and dynamic periods within your history. Because they go away having lost everything and they're going to come back basically with the Bible and with the synagogue and with a lot of other things they did not have before. During the exile, we begin to see the emergence of, of new traditions and emphases. The exiles write down the traditions so they can be preserved. There's no reason to doubt that a lot of it was already written, but, but if it had not been written, and there are people who had it in their memories, you better believe they're starting to write it down because this is how we can preserve it. They're organized. They're codified, which means they're given some structure. This is the beginning of what we will later call Scripture. It will eventually become the Hebrew Bible. Now, it's not the Bible yet. Scripture simply means authoritative texts, religious writings that have authority for community. Bible is different. Bible is a set list of books. These are in. These are not. We are centuries away from Bible, but we have scriptures. And as they come back, we begin to have references in the writings of scripture. And we begin to have references to the thing called sacred writings. We've never seen this before. Previously, we've never seen that before. It's new language. We have references to the Torah for the first time. We have references to the book of the law, which, by the way, implies what? If you've got the book, it implies that the first five books have been what? Put together. It's now Torah. We also see references to the prophets. Earlier, it would have been references to people, prophets, yeah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, all those. Now, no, it's a collection of writings which means the writings of the prophets that nobody wanted to listen to have now been collected together. And we know from, from Israeli history, we have, you ever heard of the Book of the Twelve? The Twelve Minor Prophets, it's a one scroll. And we have Jeremiah and Isaiah uh, and Daniel and others. We find references to other writings. We've got, we got, we got a group called the Law, or Torah. We've got a group called the Prophets, which probably includes what we would call the former prophets, all the history. And we have these other writings. Uh, so now we have law, prophet, and writings. Does that sound vaguely familiar? That is our Old Testament. That's our Old Testament argument. So within, say, the 400s of BC, before Jesus, this is the language that they're using. It's also likely that during the exile, we find the earliest form of the synagogue. Uh, we don't know. There's no record that says the synagogue started here. What we know is they went into it exile without one and they came back from the exile with one what does that tell you where did it start and the word actually means place of assembly so if you're hauled off into a foreign land what do you need a place of assembly and so you come together it could have been somebody's house at first in this assembly scripture could be read interpreted codified all those things can be going on by the way According to the Bible, in that first exile, 597, most of the literate people and the priests were taken into exile. So all the people you need to do that are already there. There had been an empire called Assyria, which had destroyed the northern kingdom. They were wiped out by a, a kingdom called Babylon. This is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. There was even one more, more ancient. It's basically where Iraq is today. And they swept westward all the way into Egypt and conquered a good hunk of Egypt. Along the way, Israel is caught in the middle. And they become a vassal kingdom of Babylon. And in 597, they rebel and they're swatted down. Their leaders are taken away, including the king. The king actually dies. His children are taken away. 586, they rebel again and Babylon comes in and just basically wipes them off the face of the earth. 
So they're taken in, into exile in Babylon. That's the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was taken into exile into Assyria, more up where, uh, where the Isa group is right now, up in that area. Okay. Uh, the synagogue is going to play a central role in the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Paul, and the early Christian movement. It is key, as well written scripture. By the way, these things don't exist until shortly before the time of Jesus. The stage is being set. We also find a new sense of God, not just the God of Israel, but the God of everything. And it, it, scholars look at it this way. They're taken out of Israel. The temple's destroyed. They're out of the land, and they're now in Babylon. But is God still with them? Yes. What does that tell you about God? Oh, he's not limited to the temple. He's not limited to the promised land. Ezekiel is called as a prophet in Babylon by the river Kabar. So God is active there. God is the God of everything. God is the God of all people. God is present everywhere. And by the way, that insight, which is one of the most radical insights the people of God have ever had, becomes a battle as to what that means. Should not surprise us, the writings after the exile, we find the first true expressions of monotheism what is called Second Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, is the first time that we have a statement that actually says, not only is there one God for you, there is only one God. True, authentic monotheism. The diaspora, the dispersion, adds expanded horizons to Israel's faith as well. Now, the diaspora comes in waves. It probably starts back in the 700s, the 8th century, where the Assyrians take the northern kingdom out, Lot die, Lot go into exile. A lot of others just run for the hills. I mean, they start showing up in Greece, Italy, North Africa, Asia Minor. I mean, they're just they're scattering all over the place. A couple of centuries later, the same thing happens to Babylon. A couple of centuries later, the Greeks come in. A lot of Jews head for the hills there. And then you remember the Hasmonean family, the Maccabean family. And they start feuding and fighting. So we have four distinct waves. So to the time of Jesus... We know there are Jews in every single major city in the Roman Empire and beyond, north, east, south, and west. They're everywhere because they've been scattering for centuries. By the way, by the time of Jesus, estimates are that Jews constitute, this is hard to believe, 12% of the population of the Roman Empire. That is huge. And there's, there, there, there's there more in cities. Uh, Egypt has the largest group. Babylon has the second largest group. But every major city has a very large group. They're digging up synagogues from the first century. And you name it, they, they find it there. Okay, not only is God no longer just a proko God of Israel, the people are no longer tied to the land. So now we've got a God not linked to a place, and then we've got a people that aren't just linked to a place. They're dispersed among the nations. Babylon, Egypt, and beyond. Babylon and Egypt being the two big groups. Backtracking a little. After the exile, we do rebuild the temple. Sacrifices resume. Herod's going to turn the temple into the one that we know, which is one of the wonders of the ancient world. A lot of people don't realize the temple in Jerusalem that Herod built was the largest temple complex in the Roman Empire. Tourists would come from Rome to Jerusalem to see it. There's actually writings about that. It was that magnificent. 
Alongside the second temple, we see an emphasis on the written word. Synagogues begin to appear. By the way, the archaeology says they first appear outside Palestine, 3rd century B.C., but about 100 years before Jesus, they're like mushrooms. 20 years ago, we would have said not a single 1st century synagogue has ever been discovered. A few years later, we would say, well, there's been about a dozen. That number is now over 100, most of which have been discovered in the last five years, seven of which are in the area Jesus was in, all around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when we go to Israel in, in 2015, we want to see the one where Mary Magdalene is from. Magdalene has just been, just been excavated. The Pope just dedicated it about six weeks ago. Um, everywhere Jews are, there's synagogues. In these synagogues, we know from writings, 2nd century B.C. on, the written word is central because there's no sacrifice in the synagogue. It's read, it's taught, it's interpreted, it's debated. The Greeks come in the 4th century B.C. It's another period of incredible change. It's true in our lives, and it's true in the life of Israel. The rough times are the times that force change. We have Antiochus IV, who makes a systematic attempt to eliminate the Jewish faith, makes it illegal. If you have a Torah, you die. If you circumcise your child, you die. If you practice Sabbath, you die, literally. The book of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, tells that narrative. Uh, he tries to eradicate the faith because he wants them to assimilate into the, the, the Greco-Roman culture. He wants his empire to be homogenous. He never encountered the Jews before. They don't homogenize very well. In response to the attack, an, a, an incredible thing happens, an absolutely incredible thing. Of all the things that Jews do, the one thing that emerges as the identity marker for being a Jew is faithfulness to the Torah. You make it illegal to have a Torah. You require them to be burned, and you put a death penalty on having a Torah. And any practice that comes from the Torah is illegal. What does that make the Torah if you're a Jew? Really important. Okay. We can thank the Greeks for that. It backfired right in their face. For the first time, the Torah is the identity marker of being Jewish. Now, it's during this period we get some new vocabulary. We begin to talk about Jews and Judaism. Probably it's in response to a concept called Hellenism. The Hellenists want you to be Hellenized, and we're going to say, no, thank you. We'd rather be Judaized, you know, so we're going to be Jews. It's a religious identity uh, and the pressure, the, the attempt to conform. And it seems like the harder the Greeks pushed, the more the Jews dug their face in. We begin to see for the first time the emergence of a personal faith. Prior to this, religion is something the priest does at the altar. There are no Bibles being read by individuals. There is no, indivi as far as we know, there's no individual private prayer. You know, if you're going to practice your faith, where do you go? You go to the temple, you go to the priest, you bring your sacrifice, you do that. All of a sudden, in the book of Daniel and some others, we find suddenly references to private, individual, personal prayer. Never seen that before. Personal reading, interpreting of religious texts. We see new emphases, things not connected with the temple, fasting, kosher laws, <laughs> circumcision, Sabbath observance. What's interesting about those is none of those are done at the temple. Which means if you do away with the temple, they can survive. Do any of those sound familiar in terms of Judaism? Temple's gone. Those are still there. This is the age of Halakha, interpretation. There's these raging debates. We see that in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other places about what does it mean to be the people of God. 
What are these debates all based on? They're based on interpretation. It's not, I've got this really good idea about what it means to Jew. No, be, no. What does Exodus say? What does Isaiah say? So all the debate is based on Scripture. That's new. The common point for all references back. Jesus is in the middle of that. We see the emergence of new ideas that seem to result from the interaction of nations. Uh, sometimes we refer to these as apocalyptic, but there's some things that simply were not a part of Israel's faith that all of a sudden are. Uh, religious ideas. The devil. That wasn't always there. As a matter of fact, you ever read Job? Yeah. Hasatan? It's just a good old boy from East Texas <laughs> sitting on the porch with God, spitting in the whittling, and we're going to have a betting contest about old Job over here, you know. He's not the incarnation of evil, okay? But we begin to get that. Demons, angels, life after death, judgment, heaven and hell. These are all emerging just before Jesus, so much so that the Pharisees accept all these. Do you remember what the Sadducees accept? None of them. And so there's this argument. The Apostle Paul actually get a, gets out a get out of jail free card because when he's hauled into the, the Jewish court, he says, oh, I'm here because I believe in life after death and angels and stuff. And now the Pharisees have to defend him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees start this big fight. And he gets a get out of jail free card. Okay. <laughs> Behind the beliefs is the conviction that the future is in God's hands. Hope takes two forms, otherworldly and thisworldly. Otherworldly, this is the spiritual realm. We begin to think in terms that this, this is not all there is. Okay. The world we live in is not all there is. This worldly, we begin to get ideas that at some point in the future, this is the book of Revelation, God will act, and God will act decisively. Both exist side by side. Both are expressions of what we would call apocalyptic, and they produce a new literature. Uh, we have an apocalyptic worldview, a way of looking, interpreting history in light of the faith. The fundamental belief here is that God will not allow injustice to stand. So if there is injustice, what does that mean? God will fix it. That's the hope. Uh, God will make things right. This, the year that Jesus is born into is just exploding with this kind of thing. There's the belief that there's going to be a new age coming. God's kingdom will be coming. By the way, what did Jesus start to proclaim? The kingdom of God. Uh, that God's Messiah would be the one to bring it. What is, what's the primary filter that we interpret Jesus from originally? He's the Messiah. Apocalyptic is not the only worldview to emerge. This actually grew out of a conversation we were having a while back about where did we get the idea that Jesus could be God and human? Well, it didn't come from the Greeks. It came from the Jews. Side by side with apocalyptic, we see another tradition. This is called the wisdom tradition. In the book, in the Bible, we have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Proverbs in particular has some interesting statements. We also have the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Ben Sirach. You got any ex-Catholics here? You got the better Bible. You, got, you, got, you get more for your money in the Catholic Bible, okay? Enoch, which is actually in, the, uh, in a Bible in Africa, but not in ours. The wisdom tradition is going to have a profound influence on aspects of Israel's faith, and it's going to provide the language and the, the, the intellectual apparatus that Christians can use to understand that Jesus is not just human because we already have that understanding of Judaism that God has wisdom and wisdom existed before everything else and God created the universe through wisdom and wisdom is at the right hand of God 
and wisdom is the logos, the word. Does any of that sound vaguely familiar? Substitute Jesus for wisdom, and you, you see where we go. We'll, we'll look at that. Particularly in terms of giving the first Christians ways to think about that. Finally, this, this is the big one that Jesus steps on to. Uh, any of you like that Robert Frost poem? A path diverging in the woods. We see two major trends emerge, and they're emerging right before Jesus. They exist side by side. They are at fundamental tension with each other. On the one hand, we've got this isolationist thing. We're going to turn inward. We're going to focus on being holy, set apart. That means we have to keep separate from you people who are just filthy. We want to withdraw from the world. Uh, we find that expressed in Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, the Qumran community, the Book of Jubilees, and others. It's a strong tradition. This is one of the ones that Jesus keeps bouncing into. On the other hand, you've got the opposite, that Israel is called to be a light to the nations, a blessing to the nations, that the reason God chose us was not for ourselves, not that we can sequester ourselves and be holy, but so that we can be there for the world. Uh, we can embrace the outsider. By the way, what did Jesus do in his ministry? What did Paul do in his ministry? What did the early church do in its ministry? So we see this in the Abra Abraham narrative. We actually see it in Genesis 1 through 11, that whole prologue, but particularly the Abraham narrative, the latter part of Isaiah, Zechariah, and of course Jesus was dead sending that. The Aspera Jews, known as Hellenists, are the ones who are going to pick this up. This is the story of the early church at Antioch and the Apostle Paul, we get to it. Uh, these Jews of the dispersion are the Moans. There's an extra Are the ones most <laughs> open to non-Jews? I get a better typist, particularly in the synagogues. You know about the God-fearers. The God-fearers are non-Jews, Gentiles, who are in the synagogue. They won't go all the way because they won't be circumcised. That's, that's anathema to them because that's to, to, to abuse the body. But they're there week after week with Scripture, and they have the beliefs, and they they got one foot in the door. That's who Paul's going to go to. So it's no accident that Paul will go to the synagogues, the diaspora, for his missionary endeavors. It's no accident that that's hugely successful. And that one of these synagogues is where we're first called Christians. Do you remember which one it was? Antioch. We'll tell that story. All of this that we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes did not exist with Moses, did not exist with Abraham, did not exist with David and Solomon, did not exist with Hezekiah or Josiah, did not exist until after they came back from the exile. And all of this is emerging just before Jesus steps on the world stage. Do you find that amazing? Of all the places to be. The stage is set in Palestine. It's the stage of late Second Temple Judaism. This is the stage that this is part of the stage that will Je Jesus will step onto. So next week, Barbara and I are in Santa Fe doing a wedding of one of our kids here. Uh, Susan's going to walk you through the larger stage because guess what? There was as much going on in the Greco-Roman Empire to set the stage as there was in Israel. She's going to walk you through that and through the ministry of Jesus. And I'll come back um, the next week, talk about the message of Jesus, his crucifixion, 